You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Arat exfiltrates files and records audio on Android devices. The Black Cat ransomware group uses a signed kernel driver to evade detection. GUI vial in the cloud. Unwitting money mules. Ben Yellen unpacks the Supreme Court's Section 230 rulings. Our guest is Mike DiNapoli from Simulate with insights on cybersecurity effectiveness. And a trio of commercial spyware cases. Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel briefing for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. ESET reports finding a trojanized Android app that's afflicting Android devices with AWRAT malware. The iRecorder screen recorder app began its career on Google Play innocuously in 2021, but by August of last year had become malicious. ESET explains that the app received an update containing malicious code quite a few months after its launch. The application's specific malicious behavior, which involves extracting microphone recordings and stealing files with specific extensions, potentially indicates its involvement in an espionage campaign. The malicious version has received some 50,000 downloads. Google has purged it from the store, and ESET has found no evidence of the malware anywhere else in the wild. ARAT is based on AMYTH, and its functionality suggests its origins as an espionage tool. AMYTH itself has an intelligence service heritage. It was used by APT36, a group probably based in Pakistan, that deployed Amith against government and military targets in South Asia. But ESET is careful to avoid attribution in its report. There's considerable crossover between criminal and espionage tools, and the purveyors of Arat remain unknown. A new report warns of bad luck. Black Cat may be crossing your path without your knowledge. Trend Micro reports that the Black Cat ransomware gang is using a new signed kernel driver to evade detection. The researchers assess that this new kernel driver could be an updated version 
of signed code Mandiant, Sophos, and Sentinel-1 discovered in December. The three firms' coordinated disclosure showed attackers abusing Microsoft developer accounts certified through Microsoft's hardware developer program to create malicious kernel drivers and use them in ransomware attacks. Trend Micro believes that this new driver is an updated version that inherited the main functionality from the samples disclosed in previous research. They further explain that these kernel drivers are mostly used in the evasion phases of an attack. Trend Micro assesses that this new signed driver is still being developed because it is not structured well and some of its functions currently cannot be used. The report found that threat actors can get their hands on code signing certificates by purchasing leaked ones available on the dark web, abusing Microsoft's portal, or by impersonating legitimate entities. Permiso has blogged about a threat group they've been tracking for the last year and a half, a financially motivated cloud threat actor they've called Guiville. The group is reportedly based in Indonesia and participates in crypto mining, leveraging Amazon Web Services for their illicit operations. The hackers employ graphical user interface tools, including an older version of the S3 browser from early 2021. They use the browser to conduct their operations after gaining access to the AWS management console. Researchers say the malware initially performs reconnaissance by monitoring public sources for exposed AWS keys and scanning for vulnerable GitLab instances. The researchers also say that the exploitation of known vulnerabilities, as well as vulnerable publicly exposed credentials, are primarily the methods of initial compromise. Is that new Tinder date really that generous, or is it too good to be true? The U.S. government has begun carrying out over 4,000 legal actions against individuals involved in money laundering schemes. These can include cases involving those who acted sometimes unwittingly as money mules. The Register reports that recently 25 individuals have been charged with participating in money laundering schemes. In one case of note, Craig Clayton of Rhode Island is alleged to have created 65 shell companies in the U.S., and 80 bank accounts to launder over $35 million between 2019 and 2023. U.S. Postal Service Inspector-in-Charge Eric Shen said, Anyone can be approached to be a money mule, but criminals often target students, those looking for work, and those on dating websites. When those individuals use the U.S. mail to send or receive funds from fraudsters, postal inspectors are quick to step in and put a stop to money mule activities. Many apparently unwitting money mules have been given strongly worded letters explaining the legal consequences if they don't cease all alleged money laundering. While receiving cash from a virtual date may sound enticing, the old adage, it's too good to be true, perfectly sums up this scheme. Experts agree, of course, that it's just common sense to not take money from strangers on the Internet. Doing so can lead to scams and, in this case, unknowingly assisting in large-scale money laundering operations. And finally, three spyware cases have attracted attention early this week. The first case involves charges brought against four suspects from Bavarian company Finn Fischer, who are accused by German authorities of selling surveillance software to Turkey, the Washington Post reports. The prosecutors say that the licensing requirements were intentionally violated by the suspects, 
as they were selling surveillance software to countries outside of the EU. The outlet notes that the company's FinSpy software was made available under false pretenses to members of the Turkish opposition in 2017 and was used to spy on them. Israeli spyware maker Quadream is shutting down after failure to get authorization to sell its spyware to new clients, Haaretz reports. The company also promised products and capabilities that never ended up seeing the light of day, including a broadened scope on their existing offering that allowed for the hacking of Android devices. The provider struggled to compete against fellow Israeli spyware giant NSO Group within the European Union, and honed in on Asia, Africa, and Arabic nations. Quadream reportedly held talks with four countries, including Morocco, after the NSO group didn't get the green light to renew their contract with the nation. An ethical hacker from Amnesty International calls the attempt to strike a deal with Morocco after a multitude of reported spyware abuses proof of the total inability of the commercial spyware industry to police itself. Quadream is in the process of selling off its assets, and its employees are reportedly interviewing with other organizations. And lastly, Mexico's top human rights official, Alejandro Encinas, was found to be targeted by NSO Group's flagship spyware Pegasus, the New York Times found. This case is reportedly the first in the nation's history to target such a high-ranking official in the country's administration— While it isn't possible to confirm with 100% certainty which Mexican government agency targeted Mr. Encinas, only the military has access to Pegasus, sources familiar with the contracts affirm. Mr. Encinas and the military have a less than pleasant relationship, as he has previously accused the armed forces of being involved in a mass disappearance involving 43 students. His phone has reportedly been infected a number of times. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen unpacks the Supreme Court's Section 230 rulings. Our guest is Mike DiNapoli from Simulate with insights on cybersecurity effectiveness. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. (laughs) 
IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Mike DiNapoli is Director and Cybersecurity Architect at Simulate, an automated security validation testing company. They recently released their annual cybersecurity effectiveness report, and Mike DiNapoli joins us with some of the highlights. So there are two major highlights. One is good news. For the most part, security controls are getting better year over year. We uh, looked at the results over the last three years to do some comparisons. There was a spike up in risk levels uh, in 2022, but that wasn't unexpected. Uh, 2022 is where a lot of the push to permanent remote work occurred. Uh, So there were a lot of changes that need to be made to security controls. And therefore, uh, we did expect that overall risk would go up, and it did. But for most security controls over the course of 2022, and I apologize, the uptake was in 2021 when all the remote work happened. But in Mm. 2022, over the course of the year, we saw that those same security controls were incurring less risk to the organization. The levels of risk were going down. There were, however, two exceptions, and that's the other interesting thing that we found. Hmm. Well, let's uh, talk about that. What were the exceptions? The first one was defenses around public-facing architecture, like like websites and services. So we saw a lot of uh, improperly configured web application firewalls, Uh, We saw a lot of organizations that are not adopting newer, but not new protocols and technologies. For example, in the email space, uh, there's a distinct lack of DKIM uh, and SPF and and those sorts of things being used. So that's one, public-facing infrastructure. The level of risk associated with that class of infrastructure went up a little bit, and, and that's not a great thing to see. The, the second major area of uh, higher risk than expected was in the defense of data. So what we're seeing is that data exfiltration, while the use of tools like data loss prevention systems and cloud access security broker systems has gone up, the overall risk of losing control of sensitive data has also gone up. And we would have expected that it would come down as those security controls are more often used. Hmm. So what are the conclusions to be had then based on, on that, that reality? So the first one with public-facing infrastructure. As a whole, the industry really has to begin understanding that this is a team sport. While, of course, a business is going to take the most effective security measures they can for their organization, that's expected. We also have to start worrying about working with the greater cybersecurity community. So we have to start implementing protocols like DKIM on email and DMARC on email. Now, those don't directly protect my organization when I implement them, 
but they do protect other organizations by allowing them to confirm that email sent from my org came from my org. And in return, I get to use SPF, which allows me to do that confirmation when an email is coming in from someone else. But if both sides aren't using these technologies, neither side can benefit. So that's the first thing. Public-facing infrastructure, um, first off, find shadow IT because there's a lot of websites that are visible that weren't behind a WAF. Second, let's start playing as a team sport in addition to all of the things that, of course, a business is going to do that solely focus on protecting itself. In the DLP world, in the data loss prevention world, the issue has become the threat actors adapt, and they adapt fairly quickly. Uh, they're smaller groups, sometimes individuals. There's not a lot of change, or control, change control requests and other things going on. Uh, so they tend to adapt quickly, and that's what they've done here. What we're seeing is that traditional data exfiltration methods, such as uploading to a Dropbox or a OneDrive uh, or exfiltration by things like USB, are being quite well defended. However, when it comes to things that cannot be easily blocked at a firewall or a VPN, such as AWS S3 storage, if you block S3, you're blocking about half of the internet. So it's just not easily accomplished in any way. Hmm. Those methods of data exfiltration are being allowed. And uh, it's because the industry does need to start to move away from group policies and physical restrictions as a sole means of controlling data and start moving to a more hybrid model where we have CASB, we have DLP, they are being tuned on a regular basis uh, to catch new exfiltration attempts and methodologies. So it's not all horrible news. Uh, the methods that are effective are remaining effective. However, there are much uh, more newer methods that uh, are just very difficult to block with traditional security techniques, and they are gaining steam quite rapidly. So what are your recommendations then, given the information you gathered here? How is it that uh, folks can best go about defending themselves? On the data exfiltration side specifically, there are a couple things that can be done. One is to begin the road begin to walk down the path of data loss prevention tools, cloud access security broker tools. And many organizations actually have begun walking down those paths. But these systems are not set in and forget it. So this is something we expect to see the impact of over time. Hmm. If you are walking down that path and maybe you've already implemented a DLP or turned on CASB and something like O365, of course, make sure that you're assessing it, testing it that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Prime example of that, we did see that when a user attempted to send sensitive information as any form of email attachment, it was getting blocked. And that's why we say we do see indications that these tools are coming into play. That would be a part of a CASB specifically around email. However, if the user were to scrape the text and in many cases, the text is what is actually the sensitive info, like healthcare information or business confidential or privileged information, and place it in the body of an email. It was not blocked. It, it was received by the intended recipient. So that is an indication that these tools are beginning to be used, which is good, but that they're not necessarily being tuned for the methods that threat actors will use 
which is bad. So again, none of this is indicating that this is a hopeless situation in any way, but it is indicating that perhaps these tools are not being tested during initial tuning or not being tuned over time. That's Mike DiNapoli from Simulate. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, welcome back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, Article here from uh, CNN by Brian Fung uh, titled Supreme Court Shields Twitter from Liability for Terror-Related Content and Leaves Section 230 Untouched. This story has been getting a lot of attention here, Ben. What's going on? Yeah, so this is something you and I have been following for a long time. There were these twin cases at the Supreme Court, uh, one targeting Google as the parent company of YouTube and one targeting Twitter. Both of them concerned uh, acts of terrorism, and these companies were being accused of aiding and abetting terrorism through their algorithms Hmm. uh, or through the way that they directed users to different videos. And there was a fear in Silicon Valley that these cases would be the vehicle to significantly curtail the power of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is a shield against liability for many of the most prominent platforms, if they are just acting as platforms where people can post content. There are some very contentious uh, arguments during oral arguments in both of these cases at the Supreme Court. Hmm. Uh, where I think the justices in good faith were trying to work through the complications of this issue. What counts as simply being a platform where some some other user's content is being posted? Right. And what counts as being the creator or being the creator of content by simply having these types of algorithms? Is there something unique about these algorithms? Is Google speaking in a legal sense uh, when they direct people who have watched ISIS videos to other ISIS videos? Is that action aiding and abetting acts of terrorism? And I think the Supreme Court was pretty divided on this particular issue. uh, And I think that's reflected in what happened. Hmm. So in the case that had more to do with the anti-terrorism statute, that was the Twitter case. Basically, uh, the Supreme Court in a unanimous decision said that these tech companies' actions aren't aiding and abetting terrorism according to the definition of that anti-terrorism statute. They're not taking the sufficient type of proactive uh, measure that would provide material support for terrorists by simply being the conduit to information uh, and having these algorithms directing people to different videos, that cannot be considered aiding and abetting. Uh, The Gonzalez v. Google case was set to be the case that really could have cut against Section 230. I think there was some speculation prior to oral arguments that this could be the case where the court reconsiders how broad that Section 230 liability shield is. Hmm. And what the court did in that case is basically just punt it back down to the lower court, saying, we're not going to resolve the Section 230 issue because we want the lower court to weigh the um, substantive issues of aiding and abetting terrorism in light of their decision in the Twitter case. Uh, So it's just not ripe for review for Section 230. And the allegations uh, in this case about how closely Google was connected with this act of terrorism, which was the 2015 uh, terrorist attacks in France, is so tenuous that it just is not the right vehicle to be the type of decision that would reverse or curtail 
uh, the powers of Section 230. Hmm. So this was an unusual per curiam opinion in which no justice actually signed on to it. It's the per curiam opinion, which means the, uh, the opinion of the court basically said, we're sending this back to the lower court without any discussion on the relative, uh, the relevant Section 230 issues. Uh, so where that leaves us is Section 230 is intact. The online platforms are thrilled uh, that they're not going to be exposed to liability. There's not going to be a million lawsuits just because every time somebody searches something untoward on YouTube or Twitter, they are directed through the algorithm to similarly dangerous content. Uh, so I think it's definitely a sigh of relief for uh, Silicon Valley. There are critics of Section 230 and the extent of Section 230 uh the extent of the Section 230 liability shield. Right. Um, there are certainly critics in Congress, and they're going to have to sort of regroup. Uh, they didn't get the decision that they were looking for in this case, uh, so they have to go back to the drawing board legislatively and figure out a way to uh, either amend Section 230 uh, to increase the potential liabilities for some of these companies if they are contributing to acts of terrorism or other activity, or to allow lawsuits against these companies uh in the event that there have been allegations of political bias. Uh, so there is that uh, congressional route where we might see Congress try to engage in some type of legislative action. Uh, and there might be some future Supreme Court case, um, whether it's this Gonzalez case once it's been remanded or whether it's a different case where there's more of an opportunity based on the facts of the case to decide the Section 230 issue on the merits. Hmm. Uh, so we're just going to have to wait to see if that case presents itself. So no resolution right now. Um, the status quo is good for Silicon Valley, so they're happy. This case or these cases going the way that they did, does that at all affect the likelihood of future cases making it all the way to the Supreme Court? I don't think that necessarily does. Uh, I think there, if there's some type of case where the facts are very contingent on the particular Section 230 issues and there have been proper allegations on the substantive law, then I think you would have a much better chance of seeing this actually litigated. The Supreme Court is reticent to decide major uh, legal questions unless they are absolutely forced to. Hmm. Um, it's kind of this constitutional canon of avoidance. If they don't have to step in and decide something— generally, with very notable exceptions, uh, <laughs> which I will not get into, but it is generally their <laughs> practice uh, to avoid weighing in on those issues. And I think that's what happened here. This just wasn't a case that was going to be decided by a complex analysis of Section 230 and exactly how it was going to apply. I think with a different set of facts, it could have been very different and we would have gotten that decision. Uh, and now I think the justices, based on the oral arguments and reading probably hundreds of different briefs, are more familiar with some of the Section 230 issues uh, that have been raised and might be more likely in the future to grant uh, certiorari if a Section 230 case comes their way. Hmm. All right. Interesting stuff. Ben Yellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. 
And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by Rachel Gelfin. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.